Hi everybody, Stefan Molyneux, hope you're doing well. So I'm here with Michael A. Woodley of Mini. He is an author, along with Edward Dutton, of a new book that is very, very, very good. There's my hypersyllabic review. It's very good, and it's called At Our Wits End, Why We're Becoming Less Intelligent and What It Means for the Future Societist. So uh, thank you very much, Michael, for taking the time today. Well, thank you very much for once again hosting me, Stefan. So the book opens with something that I remember being quite sad about when I was younger. I mean, I remember one of my first memories is watching the moon landing on a very old black and white television uh, set in London. I was very excited by the Concorde. I was very excited by the space shuttle. And it just felt like we hit this high arc of engineering and technical genius. And things have been kind of falling away ever since. And I thought maybe it was willpower. I thought maybe it was computer games. And you have, of course, along with Edward Dutton, a thesis that seems to be very, very solidly grounded in a wide variety of metrics. So let's start with the general thesis, and then we'll drill down into the specific components. Okay, so the basic idea is, and many of your listeners are going to be sort of broadly familiar with this theme of what's known as dysgenics. So this is a term that's been applied to this this process of selection against high IQ. So the idea is people with high IQ have relatively fewer numbers of offspring, they leave fewer numbers of descendants than people with lower IQ. And because IQ is a heritable trait, um, it that leads to the inevitable process of a mean of IQ dropping. And in the book, what we what we propose is that uh, what's specifically dropping is not so much IQ, but the sort of general mental ability or general intelligence factor. And, um, and this is highly heritable, and it's sort of measured using things like reaction times and working memory. And all of these, if you look at secular trends or temporal trends in these measures, you see they're all going down and have been for nearly a century or over a century in some cases. So let's start slicing and dicing this really challenging question of intelligence, because there are a lot of people who believe it's 100% environmental. There are some people, of course, who accept the science that certainly by our late teens is about 80% heritable. So let's talk about IQ, how it's measured, and how it's differentiated from general intelligence. Well, you can think of an IQ test as basically being any test from which you can derive an intelligence quotient. And in the olden days, the intelligence quotient was actually a real quotient. It was basically the ratio of your mental age to your chronological age. So the idea was, if you were if you were age 10, but you were processing information at the level of a 20-year-old, then the ratio of those two measures would give you the IQ. Just multiply that by 100. Today, it's not so much a ratio. It's more a sort of a, how well you perform on a given cognitive ability measure uh, relative to the average of a population. So everything is now scaled relative to a sort of population average. And a lot of these IQ tests are calibrated in such a way that that you, you, you compute a sort of average. And then when you estimate your own IQ, you're always estimating it relative to the average of this norma- normalization sample on which the test was calibrated. So that's really all IQ is. It's a sort of set of cognitive ability taxing measures that collectively measure a quality known as intelligence or rather a quantity known as intelligence. General intelligence, however, is a result of the fact that many of these seemingly distinct measures of IQ, be they verbal IQ measures or 
visual spatial IQ measures or quantitative reasoning IQ measures or even simple things like sort of perceptual psychomotor skills, that sort of thing, irrespective of how the uh, intelligence is measured, these different ways of measuring it seem to correlate with one another. And that sort of super correlation among these distinct measures of intelligence gives rise to a thing we call general intelligence. Now, breaking out the intelligence metrics into the real world seems to be a big challenge for people because, of course, the IQ test is criticized as well. All it does is test how good you are at taking IQ tests. But the correlation between IQ tests and general world abilities in some cases seems to be quite high. Yes, um, particularly with uh, things like occupational prestige, which correlates with IQ greater than 0.8. We also have correlations of educational attainment. It turns out that over 70% of the variance in educational attainment is genetically the same as the variance in IQ. They share common genetic variance, and 70% of the variance is shared rather than distinct to the two measures. So a lot of how well you do in school in terms of your grade point average and your performance on your advanced placement examinations or your A-levels or or your international baccalaureate is highly, highly related to general intelligence. And people who have higher IQ tend to do much better on these scholastic assessment measures. It also extends into the world of things like um, cognitive ergonomics. That is to say, the degree to which you can sort of solve simple problems, which for some people are more simple than others, but might actually have very significant consequences. For example, IQ correlates with your likelihood of getting into a traffic accident. It also correlates with your ability to manage diabetes medication, because diabetes management is a very cognitively demanding thing. It, it, you, have to, you have to be able to control what you eat, and you have to be able to look out for the warning signs of various of these medical complications associated with diabetes. It's actually an overwhelming thing, and people with lower levels of intelligence uh, often have more problems managing their diabetes because it is too complex a problem. So it's, it's very important, and Jensen referred to this huge network of correlations between IQ tests and all these other real-world criteria as the G-nexus, i.e. this great big nexus that sort of revolves around general intelligence. And Linda Gottfriedson actually stated in one of her papers that general intelligence is as central to the social sciences as um, as the gravitational constant is to cosmology. It's this sort of great factor around which all of these forms of sociometric variation revolve more or less and it can't be ignored it's extremely important well and and it offends people's sensibilities in a way now that it didn't seem to in the past and this is a remarkable phenomenon and i think it it comes from two things one is that it seems kind of unfair you know like people some people are just born really really smart and they get all the goodies and they get better health they get greater longevity they get more money they you know it just seems kind of unfair But I think the other aspect is the left seems particularly hostile to differences in age or or, or genetic differences in intelligence. And I think that's because on the left and from the Marxist tradition, they say, well, what is the difference in wealth? The difference in wealth is exploitation. It's stealing. The only only reason the rich guy is rich is because he stole from all his workers. We're going to steal it back. It's a justification for a lot of political power. But if it's genetic, 
then it's like, okay, well, it's just the role of the dice genetically. It's not because people are stealing from the poor. They're just super smart and incredibly productive. And the best thing to do would be to let them control as many resources as possible so we all become wealthier. And I think these two poles are creating a lot of friction uh, between the science and what has become a new sort of culty religion of leftist hyper-egalitarianism. Yes, um, the wine guards refer to it as paranoid egalitarian meliorism. <laughs> so this idea that there's this sort of paranoid ideation exactly along the lines that you just said, the idea that these differences have to be due to some kind of systemic mechanism that is engendering inequality due to somebody having more power than somebody else. And the uh, logical consequence of believing this is that you become increasingly sort of paranoid in terms of policing society and others around you looking for the factors that may be uh, generative of these obviously can't be genetic sources of individual differences. So yes, if you sort of reject the premise out of hand that there is a genetic etiology to differences in IQ or, or really any kind of source of individual differences, um, then yes, you have to sort of construct these very lurid, almost conspiratorial theories in order to actually account for why these differences exist in the absence of genetic variation. I'd also point out that that this sort of view that IQ is highly heritable and that the, these differences between individuals and groups are, are due to genetic factors or in part due to genetic factors is not entirely incompatible with all forms of egalitarianism. There are some egalitarians, particularly those that subscribe to sort of Rawlsian notions and, and luck egalitarians who are perfectly content with the idea that these differences could be genetic. Um, they just sort of restrict their egalitarianism to the domains in which they think it's going to make the maximum impact. But yes, you're right. As far as a characterization of a so-called new left, yes, they, as, a, as a rule of thumb, they, they generally are extraordinarily hostile to this sort of, this sort of work which is really and, very it's sad. It's a real shame too, because I believe that because there are many people in the world who are in mostly accidental possession of extraordinarily high intelligence, they kind of have a duty, a noblesse oblige to use their gifts as well as possible to the furtherance of the benefits of mankind. Some people can do that scientifically. Some people can do that through, um, through uh, productive activities in the marketplace and so on. There's a wide variety of things that can be done but of course, if the leftists are right and anyone who's doing better is automatically an evil capitalist with a monocle and a pig snout and so on, that does alienate people from wanting to, to share their gifts of intellect with humanity and work for the common benefit of all. Yes, and I mean, I, I'd go so far as to say that actually uh, this is precisely the design that Darwin had in mind when um, in his uh, wonderful plan of things, he devised these geniuses, uh, which we do talk about in the book, these individuals of extraordinarily rarefied intellectual power and very unusual sort of people. They tend to fail miserably as individuals in terms of reproduction. But as far as actually being able to better their society through their highly altruistic giving, which is what a lot of these geniuses do, they're sort of compelled by this inner in a drive towards just giving of themselves um, to you know, throwing themselves wholeheartedly into these pursuits, essentially intellectual. And the net effect of this is, is, is definitely a net benefit for society. And this, the, the products of the fruits of these geniuses 
um, fueled the growth of great civilizations and empires, um, both in the ancient, the classical world and, and in the contemporary world with the Victorian period, for example, being particularly uh, productive and prolific in terms of innovation. Let's do a real time travel whiplash here and go back early on, because one of the things that's really wild when studying this kind of evolution is that the human brain is unique in its capacities relative to just about any other organ in the known biological universe, so to speak. And so you talk earlier in, in the book about the value of intelligence for primates and so on. And then something kind of weird happened where in nature or, or evolution or biology just basically said, to heck with it, we're just going to keep building this human brain. Like we're just going to go all out, pedal to the metal, take every conceivable amount of energy and, and pour it in like as a baby, what a third of your caloric intake is used to build your brain. And, you know, we get born with these giant heads right before, like five minutes before being born later would split our mothers in two and so on. So something happened where nature just kept piling more and more intelligence into the human brain which has given us a completely unique organ relative to other species. Do you have any idea what the tipping point for that may have been or what might have driven that? Well, there's actually a couple of, uh, of theories. Um, there's one theory, which is the, uh, the idea that, this is Richard Wrangham's theory, that uh, cooking might actually have been a major factor facilitating the increase in brain size in, in uh, um, the hom hominid precursor lineages to modern humans, that is to say, Homo erectus. Um, and what he argued was that when humans learn to cook, they all primitive humans learn to cook, what they were essentially doing was they were engaging in a form of digestion that was external to the digestion that requires the uh, stomach. So by cooking food, what you're doing is you're denaturing a lot of protein. And you're, you're breaking up complex molecules and things that would otherwise require a lot of energy to digest. So this means that mutations that favor larger, more energy expensive brains, which may be beneficial for solving certain classes of evolutionarily novel problem, can all of a sudden be favored in selection. Because now you don't, your brain does not have to compete with your gut in order to actually uh, liberate in order to actually produce, uh, um, uh, compete for energy, essentially, because we're now doing all this digestion externally through cooking. Um, but that's one sort of possibility. Is another possibility is that is that the human brain was, or rather, not so much a human brain, um, but human intelligence, because intelligence can vary independently of brain size. Um, that's definitely true of general intelligence, uh, which seems to be actually quite strongly independent of brain size. Um, based on a, a meta-analysis that I published a couple of years ago. Um, general intelligence in particular can be subject to runaway forms of selection. So this would be forms of selection in which you have selection for sexual ornaments, cognitive ornamentation, um, runaway selection for creativity, for example. These things might be uh, recursively uh, uh, sort of, if through a positive feedback loop, favored under certain form regimes of sexual selection. Another possibility is, of course, uh, you, have, uh, you, you have this observation that human evolution, the rate of human evolution over the last uh, 10,000 years in the Holocene Epoch has been on the order of 100 times greater than at any point in previous, uh, uh, previous epochs or previous periods. And one possibility is this is the point at which humans transitioned into culture using and culture building, 
a culture building species. And this was characterized by transitions away from a hunter-gatherer mode of subsistence towards sort of sedentarism, agrarianism, and eventually feudalism and urbanization. And these processes, far from sort of recusing our minds from the harshness of, of the Hobbesian sort of realm, essentially, of nature, red and tooth and claw, which was the idea put forward by Stephen Jay Gould, of course, that uh, that we're just uh, this culture-using species and that all the evolution is cultural and there's no more biological evolution. Far from that, actually, culture simply created even stronger selection pressures, which would have uh, sort of redounded to intelligence in terms of favoring higher and higher levels in tandem with increasing cultural complexification. So we call this process culture gene coevolution. This is an idea first put forward by the recently deceased Luigi L. Cavalli Sforza. Right. Now, I try not to get through any of these interviews without getting a, a hot take on Neanderthal sex. Do you think <laughs> that the uh, rumors that I've heard that uh, the, the, one of the difference between the sort of Northeast Asians and Caucasians versus the Sub-Saharan Africans in particular is the introduction of Neanderthal genes into the gene pool. Do you think that holds any weight? Has any progress been made on determining that? Well, yes, it seems to be the case that there is virtually no evidence. And I'll qualify this by saying that this is not actually my, this sort of paleogenomics is, is, is an area that I'm interested in and have actually published in, but it's not this sort of deep paleogenomics. It's not an area where I, where I know I have my finger on the pulse of the, the current events. But from what I understand, and one of your more astute listeners may sort of jump down my throat as I say this. But from what I understand, the current position is that there are no indications of Neanderthal admixture or introgression in African populations, but that there are indications in European populations, which is a sort of potentially major source of distinctness between those two populations. And in the case of East Asian populations, there's yet another uh, homin, uh, hominid um, known as uh, Denisova homin. And the Denisovan homin was something that seems to have infiltrated the genetics of East Asians and not Europeans. And there seems to be this distinct sort of tripartite division there between Europeans with the Neanderthal admixture of about, what is it, 1% to 5%, something like that. Uh, then you have similar sort of percentage of Introgression in the case of Denisova homin ancient DNA in the East Asian population. In the case of Africans, the, uh, there, there might be introgression from other archaic uh, homin lineages. I, I don't know um, what the current research is, but from what I understand, there, the, 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 any introgression of Neanderthal elements are very limited, possibly restricted to sort of northern Africa, where you have the border between the two populations. Well, I can only assume that the uh, hominin. Uh, sorry, the hominid that uh, interbred with the East Asian populations was extraordinarily good at video dance parties because that's something that I've noted. Now, let's start talking about a little bit closer to where we are in the present. This heritability of intelligence is very key to the progress of civilization. And we'll get to the cycle of civilization in a bit. Yes. But this struck me, and I know, again, we're whipping around in time here. I, I hope people will forgive me for that. But this sentence here... I, I kind of pondered for quite a while. She said, between the 1400s and the mid-19th century, in every generation, the richer 50% of the population had more surviving children than the poorer 50%. And this is something that is really unremarked upon because now we're used to the idea of the barren, socialite, white-wearing, 
uh, Chanel-toting, little dog-in-a-purse woman who doesn't have children, who's wealthy. But in the past, and we saw this among Jewish rabbis as well, that the most intelligent tended to have the, the most children, which resulted in, what, a third of an IQ point per generation, giving close to a standard deviation between whites and Ashkenazi Jews in present. But in the past, the rich had lots of kids, and the poor either didn't have as many or not as many survived. And that's something that's very foreign to what we see when we look at society today. Yes, it's interesting. I, I'll, I'll, I'll just start off with, with, with a, uh, a mention of, of the, the I, I was actually an author or co-author, one of five co-authors on a paper which dropped earlier this year in the journal Evolutionary Behavioral Sciences with the first people to show genetic mediation, the difference in the means of IQ between Ashkenazic Jews and uh, non, non-Jewish Gentiles. Um, uh, these are white European non-Jewish, uh, not white Europe, uh, Europeans, non-Hispanics. And we actually found 70% of the variation between the groups and the group difference could actually be accounted for by a polygenic score, which is a sort of genetic index measure of, um, of, of variants, which sort of capture variation in, in intelligence. We, we, could, we could get 70% of the mediation there. So we, we're actually the first people to show this now. We've, we've got the first paper, but boy, did that cause some, cause some problems, kicked up a bit of a, a stink on Twitter when that came out. Um, but yes, yeah, sort of going back to your, 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 your point about the sort of significance of intelligence, particularly with, with regards to historical patterns of selection for intelligence. Um, yes, I'd say at least 50% historically. Um, in some cases where you had outbreaks of disease and you had other sort of sources of what are known as extrinsic mortality. So these are uncontrollable sources of mortality. Um, harsh climates, that sort of thing, you might have had up to 100% difference in fertility favoring the offspring. In other words, the only people having any children that survived were the, the elite historically. And this is a genuinely interesting issue because the, the idea is that this should have led to IQ increasing. And it did. And we know that this is the case now because we actually have several lines of evidence supporting this, but the most convincing is a paper I published two years ago um, in the journal Twins Research and Human Genetics, where I looked at the uh, frequencies of these genetic variants, these sort of composite genetic variants, these polygenic scores in ancient genomes sampled from between 5,000 and about 1,500 years ago. And I compared them to modern genomes that were ancestrally matched and the modern genomes have variants which are much richer for these, sorry, have genomes which are much more enriched for these genetic variants than the ancient genomes. So this process has been going on for at least um, 5,000 years in, in the West, this process of sort of downward social mobility among a very reproductively successful high status group uh, who eventually come to replace everyone in society as the low status individuals are sort of wheedled out by selection. And, of course, Gregory Clark, who's a very famous economist at the University of California at Davis, has uh, shown very convincingly that this process of downward social mobility using pedigree data, genealogical data, very deep genealogical data for the population of England, has shown that really since the 12th century through to the 19th century, the process stopped in the 19th century, but up until that point, there was a tendency, a very strong tendency, for people with high social status to have more surviving offspring than people with low social status, which led to the surnames 
which previously were very rare elite surnames, uh, like Molyneux, for example, which is a which is a Norman surname, um, has its origins in the Norman Conquest, becoming relatively more common over time. So if you track the frequency of Molyneux, you see they were very rare when William the Conqueror came over to England. There are only a tiny number of noble houses that had that name, but now they're very common. You see a lot of Molyneux in the peerage in England, for example. So there's a lot of elite Molyneux up there, but there are also a few sort of Molyneux who are of lower socioeconomic status, but undoubtedly descend from the Norman noble lines in the 12th century. So basically those Molyneux have come to take over and they have become the dominant gene pool essentially in, 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 in England over, the, over the, the, the period of time. It's not just Molyneux, it's other sort of formerly elite surnames. And that, that is a good, it's not genetic data, but it's, it's, it's genealogical data and it's very strong uh, genealogical data. Now, of course, I'll just qualify this by saying briefly that in order that, that I don't mischaracterize Gregory Clark, Clark himself has gone on record as stating that he, even though he believes that traits associated what he calls the bourgeois phenotype, so this would be things like time preferences, you know, having high having conscientiousness a, and yeah, high yeah. conscientiousness exactly. You know, industriousness, sort of a savings mentality, this sort of thing. Or the, we could just say Protestant, that, but okay, that's a. Yes, you could, you could say exactly. You could say these sort of Protestant type uh, type uh, Weberian type value sets. These, you know, Weber Weberian type values. He argues they they were heritable and they were what was under selection. He actually states in his 2007 book, but he doesn't believe it was intelligence. That was under selection. However, it's fairly obvious that intelligence had to be a major factor that was being selected for over this long period of time historically. I, I refuse to believe that selection just completely ignored it in favor of personality traits. That can't have happened. So we had to have been getting smarter and the genetic data seemed to attest to that in the long run. Now, something we touched on in our last interview, I just wanted to revisit uh, briefly, which is the question that we're talking in very general terms about humanity, the planet as a whole. But I think we do need to differentiate between whether a more selection pressures, particularly for things like the deferral of gratification. And to my way of thinking, you know, you have a long winter like in Siberia, where a lot of the Northeast Asians developed. Of course, the Europeans are dealing with uh, plagues and, and they're dealing with the winters and other selection pressures. And it seems to me almost like, well, you have to have the deferral of gratification in order to survive these things. And if the only way to get there is to increase brain size, nature will begrudgingly do that just to get to the holy grail of the deferral of gratification necessary to survive winters and, and these kinds of things. Whereas in, of course, more warmer and tropical climates where you have year-round food and, and so on, the deferral of gratification is not quite as uh, necessary. So I just wanted to differentiate these areas so that we don't put you know, that which are not identical into one big basket. Yes, this is sort of the cold winters theory, which was the term that uh, J. Philip Rushton gave it in the 80s. Um, but actually, the idea has its origins in the, the work of Schopenhauer. Um, he was the first person to propose it, funnily enough, in the 18th century. And the basic idea is, as you say, there's a sort of a premium placed on the fitness of those who are capable of being able to engage in insightful behaviors, planning, you know, planfulness, who are able to exhibit self-control, etc. Um, and this in turn leads to gradually the means of these levels of traits increasing over time in those populations which were subject to, uh, to, to these sources of, of, of what's known as predictable harshness. So 
predict there are two sort of dimensions of environmental risk. You have predictability, which is a measure of the degree to which the mortality is random and uncontrollable, essentially. Um, sorry, harshness is the measure of the degree to which the mortality is random and uncontrollable and predictable. No, take two. Um, harshness is a measure of the, the, uh, the, the absolute level of mortality and predictability is a measure of the uh, sort of variance in mortality. So the idea is that you want to try and take as many of these things which are making mortality unpredictable. And you want to be able to bring them into your control. You want to be able to control them. In other words, you want to turn those extrinsic mortality factors into intrinsic mortality factors, ones which you can control intrinsically. So one solution to this is to develop higher levels of intelligence and also slower life history speeds. And this was, of course, J. Philip Rushton's theory that there was this big sort of matrix of life history traits. And he believed brain size and general intelligence was part of this matrix of life history traits and that this this was subject to strongly directional selection, especially among populations living in uh, colder, more northerly, more easterly environments. And now, this is uh, R versus K, if I remember right. This, is, this right. is his differential K model. So uh, we tend to use the term life history theory now to describe it. Um, but he came up with this idea of all humans are K-selected, but some are more differentially K than others. So, so he envisaged this source of individual differences and group differences um, within humans, where all humans were highly K-selected relative to, say, rabbits or oysters, but there are these sources of variation. Uh, we now know that life history and intelligence are slightly different things. Um, they're not necessarily correlated of each other, at least in modern populations, because they seem to sort of relate to different domains um, and different sort of neural substrates as well. But historically, during this period that Rushton describes, it's entirely plausible that uh, these were subject to co-selection, especially in ancestral, uh, the, ancestral the ancestral populations, the founder populations for contemporary uh, Eurasian people uh, to a you know, possibly stronger extent than elsewhere. It's um, a horrible thing to contemplate, but I, I do want to touch on it. And the horrible thing is this. So, it's a long, hard winter, and you've been very careful with your food, and you have taken food away from your crying children to make sure that you have enough to last through till spring, and you've done all of the deferral of gratification stuff, and your neighbor has not, right? You know, the grasshopper and the ant thing, right? So the modern <laughs> world, as far as I understand it, is predicated on slamming the door in your neighbor's face and kind of letting him say, well, you know, you didn't plan... Uh, sorry, I got to take care of my own, I got to take care of my own kids, that there's a kind of coldness to the development of intelligence, which is allowing for those who don't succeed to really fail. Like whether the failure is um, short-term genetic in terms of like they all just freeze to death or starve to death, or whether the failure is long-term genetic in that they just have a slightly less high chance of their kids getting to sexual maturity and so on. But We've got such a nice, squishy, soft-hearted civilization at the moment, but it's predicated and built upon the foundation of, I'm taking care of mine, good luck with yours, but I'm not sacrificing mine for yours. And that's kind of what built us to have this ability to have this big, squishy welfare state, uh, kind to perhaps a pathological degree civilization. Well, it's, it's interesting you should say that, because I'm, I'm sort of, of of the opinion that most that the strongest factor acting on intelligence in terms of selection pressures 
was social selection. So that is to say the degree to which the, the way in which you interact with others in the context of, of maintaining culture, maintaining civilization, that sort of thing, carries with it certain fitness costs. Selection of social partners can raise fitness uh, of the social partner. It can also reduce the fitness of the social partner if it's a particularly bad um, uh, social match, essentially. But the idea that people move through society and that, that there are sort of niches within society, within the economy, within the broader sort of tapestry of society, uh, which function as filters for different levels of intelligence is quite potent. I mentioned at the beginning of this, uh, this talk that um, intelligence is very highly correlated of occupational prestige. Well, who gets to determine what is a prestigious occupation and what isn't? It's other people. So in other words, you, you can see here a, a sorting mechanism whereby different levels of intelligence strongly affect the degree to which what you do is perceived as prestigious by other individuals. And this is a, uh, you know, this has huge effects in terms of how, how, how selection of social partners can translate into the allocation of opportunities, financial resources, securing mates, which is sort of downstream of that, because women, in the, for the purposes of long-term mating, are not really interested so much in intelligence. They're not interested in intelligence at all for the purposes of short-term mating, um, incidentally. Abs, I believe, <laughs> is the distinguishing characteristic these days. That's right. Sapiosexuality is a myth. It's been disproved. Um, women are really not interested in, in, in intelligence. Um, but for long-term mating, they, they kind of are interested in it by proxy, but they're not really selecting for intelligence. They're selecting for, they're selecting for actual manifestations of intelligence which have a bearing on your ability as a provider. So they're selecting for wealth, for example, mm. or education status or some 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 token some social token of that intelligence some indication that you're not just smart but you're able to use that intelligence to do something that makes you a good provider so that's what i mean by sexual selection being possibly downstream of social selection and of course the factors that contextualize social selection within human populations are environmental so populations where you have high levels of mortality among males for example you have relatively few males compared to females due to various factors, uh, war, intra-group intra violence, etc. Where you shift the sex ratios, you actually cause women to want to select different things. It's almost like a sort of compensation mechanism. Uh, it's called fluctuating sex ratio selection, and it's a source of balancing selection on, on various traits. So it's a good example of how a, a natural catastrophe that sort of depletes a population of men or women or, or what have you and shifts those sex ratios can lead to this corrective kind of balance whereby the women start picking men who are more, uh, uh, you know, sort of higher on short-term mating orientation perhaps uh, versus men who are higher on uh, long-term mating orientation, depending on whether there are more males or more females respectively. Mm -hmm. um, so it's all a big selective sequale, essentially. One thing tends to entail the other, which tends to entail the other. Right. Now, having touched on Neanderthal sex, let's start talking about third cousin sex. Because it's very interesting in the book where you talk about this sweet spot in a sense, like you don't want someone so genetically close to you that you're going to get up with um, gene match defects, nor someone so distant that there's less of your genetic material being passed along. Uh, and was it wrist sizes and so on, uh, that, that how close the people can be genetically tends to have something to do with how attractive they are? That's true. There is this there is this theory that was first posited by J. Philip Rushton. It's called genetic similarity theory, 
although there have been a couple of researchers who've tried to reinvent it um, and have not given Rushton credit. I'm not going to name any names, but there's been a, a, a rather uh, alarming uh, degree to which uh, people are sort of trying to claim that this is a, they've reinvented the theory. But no, the reality is that um, that, that basically, uh, uh, basically partners, both social and sexual partners, so it's not just sexual partners, it also extends to friendships as well, but social and sexual partnerships are uh, predicted by the degree to which those social and sexual partners are genetically similar to one another. And genetic similarity is both an absolute and a relative thing. So we know from the work of Hamilton that there's this idea of kin selection, that you really want to sort of help people who are related to you to a very high degree rather than people who are related to you to a very low degree because it increases gene copying success. But there's also relative selection, and this sort of ties in the work of Henry Harpending and Frank Salter, which is to say your, your sort of broader, what they call ethnic genetic interests, um, relate to the degree to which you are relatively related to an individual of the same population or group um, relative to another individual sourced from another group that has more distal common ancestry. And um, that can lead to sort of randomly selected co-ethnics essentially being as similar to one another, um, say two randomly selected British people being as similar to one another uh, in relative terms as two first cousins. Um, when you compare the genetic distance between those two individuals and the average genetic distance between those two individuals and a randomly selected Nigerian, this is the example uh, given by Henry Harpending, and conversely, a Nigerian would be related to those individuals at the level of a negative first cousin. So when when sort of engaging in these, these social alliance formations and things, um, the, the idea is to select honest signals of genetic similarity. So the traits which are more heritable um, including traits like IQ, tend to be traits which are more valued for the purposes of social partnership and also sexual partnership because there's higher sortative mating for these traits like IQ. But as I mentioned, that's probably by proxy rather than rather than directly. Um, so you see that generally, as as the as the uh, as the level of assortative mating for a trait increases, in other words, as two individuals are are similar to one another, degree of similarity increases, the heritability for that trait increases as well. Mm. And you mentioned the third cousin thing. It's interesting that came from the work of uh, Augustine Kong, uh, published this paper back in 2012. Uh, he's this very brilliant. Um, Icelandic researcher who's put periodically puts out these sort of mind-blowingly amazing papers, um, which are just, you know, the sort of papers you read and you go, I wish I'd done that, is that sort of thing. Um, and he did one in 2012 where he got the population of Iceland, which is a sort of fully gene-banked population. There's virtually everyone there is on record, and they have the pedigrees going back hundreds of years as well, so you can work out exactly where everyone came from going back to the sort of Vikings. And um, what he found was that he looked at the number of offspring or relative lifetime reproductive success versus the genetic distance between the, the partnerships. And he found that the peak fitness relatively was among individuals who were related to each other at the level of third cousin. Those who were related to each other at the level of first or second cousin tended to experience inbreeding depression. Those who were related to each other at the level of sort of fourth and fifth cousin tended to experience outbreeding depression. They actually had fewer numbers of children. 
And people don't realize this, but there's a flip side to inbreeding depression. You can have too much outbreeding as well. So it apparently turns out that at least in Iceland, the sweet spot has been at the level of third cousins in terms of fitness. So that's that's the optimum. That's marriage. That's the only bit of marriage counseling I'm going to give is, <laughs> is, is pick a third cousin because you're likely statistically to have slightly more offspring relative to the population mean. Now, this idea of genetic in-group preference is something I've kind of been hammering for the last couple of years on this show, because we do have this wild experiment occurring in the West, mostly in the West, other places too, but this multiculturalism idea. And I was really struck, if you can give me a few more details about this, that there are all these computer models that have been run, and genetic in-group preference seems to win out. Like, if you're willing to exclude genetic outgroups, you're willing to include and promote the interests of genetic in-groups, like tribalism, basically. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work if you are just helping everyone. And it doesn't work if you help no one. But if you help just your own kind, then you do really well. And of course, I point this out, there's you know, ethnic groups within the West where you could talk about this. But given how related ideological beliefs in politics are to genetics, you can also look at the left as a big, giant tribe that aggressively keeps out non-leftists, and it promotes the interests of leftists within, which has a certain amount to do with promoting the genetics that to some degree underlie political perspectives. That's very interesting. Actually, J. Philip Rushton had exactly the same idea, and it's buried away in one of the pages of his, uh, his Race, Evolution, and Behavior book, where he talks about, in the third edition, where he talks about um, genetic similarity theory, and he actually speculates in a kind of one-sentence way, that it could be that a lot of political tribalism is, in fact, an extension of genetic similarity theory. And what's happening is you the sort of endemic negation of irreducibly pluralistic values that is sort of characteristic of political discourse, where there are literally these mutually unintelligible moral grammars, mm. as John Haidt calls them, you know, these moral grammars. There's just no way people on the left and the right can communicate with each other. This is almost by design. It's almost set up that way by Darwin to sort of nether the two shall meet and they shall both breed among themselves and, and keep the levels of righties and lefties at a certain optimum, essentially, so that if if certain societal pressures change or certain things shift, you can always draw from that population of one political orientation and use that to solve a particular social problem. And again, if it shifts too far in the other direction, you can always draw on that population of the opposite political ideology and have them come in and sort of correct things. And that's, you know, that's kind of the idea. And the interesting thing is the people who enjoy the most fitness in modern populations are extremists of the left and the right. But at the moment, it's much, much more so the right than the left. And there's really, really good data on this. People have published amazing papers where they've worked out the fertility of people as a function of political orientation. And what they found is that originally it was sort of a, a U-shaped curve where the fitness advantage was at the extremes of a distribution. But over time, it's shifted so that now the benefit goes to people on the extreme right. And one way of looking at that might be um, sort of set against the context of your broader critique of globalism. Uh, it might be that this is Darwin's way of trying to correct things. Um, it might be that this is, you know, this is selection at work. Essentially, the factors that are at play in modern society have handicapped the fitness of people on the, the moderate political moderates and also people on the extreme left, but seem to be emboldening people on the extreme right in terms of uh, engendering high levels of fertility, which is, which is very interesting and something I'd love to study in more detail, actually. Yeah, the argument that I've heard goes something like this, that 
the people more on the right tend to be Christians. Christians tend to frown on abortion. They tend to promote marriage. And so they're going to have more children than people on the left who may have equivalent amounts of sex, but less pair bonding and more birth control and more sexual hedonism and so on. And so what happens is because the left realizes that they're being outbred by the rightists, what they do is they bring in immigrants in order to shore up their numbers to ensure the continuation of leftist political parties. Yes, yeah, so it stands to reason. It's a possibility. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's yeah. been studied in any detail, but it, is, uh, it certainly is a possibility that does go a long way to explain some of what's going on with multiculturalism. Yes, and of course, it sort of raises the question as to how stable this this uh, this, this pattern of selection is going forwards. Um, if an increasingly large proportion of the, the the populations in Western countries is going to be made up of the descendants of people who are, you know, really rather sort of jolly right wing, certainly by you know contemporary standards, um, and po- quite possibly more religious as well. But but the you know the question is, are they going to be smarter? Um, it does does the relationship between political orientation and fertility uh, does it withstand controls for intelligence? So is it is it the case that there's a lot of people with very right wing views who are uh, enjoying relatively high levels of fertility, but they're not that bright? And the this could data be- that I've seen is that, and it was erroneously put out that people on the left were smarter, but when they looked at the data in particular, it seemed that the people on the right were. A little bit smarter, and certainly just in terms of the deferral of gratification, waiting until you get married to have sex, for instance, or whatever it is. Even the deferral of gratification, like I'll have kids when I'm younger, when I have more energy, and I tend to be genetically more fit for it, as opposed to later. I think, I don't know, it's not much, but uh, there does seem to be some intelligence advantage uh, among conservatives as opposed to liberals, but um, I'm sure that, that numbers, those numbers are somewhat still in flux. Yes, I, I, I put forward a, a hypothesis several years ago, which I called the cultural mediation hypothesis, and it's sort of based on the idea that, particularly among the middle, sort of excluding the political extremes, where you have sort of very strongly ingrained convictions and very heavily tilted moral foundations. So you might have, in the case of people on the left, you know, very high tilt towards these so-called individualistic moral foundations, so fairness and equality preference, that sort of thing, harm avoidance, you know, that sort of thing. People on the right might be tilted towards binding values. So these are by, these are values associated with tradition and authority and purity, that sort of thing. Um, so you might get this kind of tilt at the extremes, but in the centre you get this sort of amorphous mass of equal levels, approximately of these. This is sort of your broadly construed conser- social conservative or, or generic conservative set of values, at least according to um, uh, sort of moderate conservatism, according to John Hyde. Um, and I suppose the question is really, uh, the question I had is to what extent is that is there some flexibility in those moral foundations? And to what extent is there some degree that or some sense in which people in the middle, by virtue of having sort of high levels of uh, effortful control, you know, being able to regulate their personality in socially desirable ways, to what extent are, are those those people able to sort of shift between one and the other based on whichever extreme is in is in power. So you have this sort of vast mass of followers in the middle who are really neither one thing nor the other, um, but are willing to hammer their colours to the mast of whichever of the extremes, the uncompromising extremes, ends up taking control. And this this sort of leads to an interesting situation because what it suggests is that normal range political variation doesn't so much measure um, the, the sort of actual tilt among the moral foundations. 
so much as it measures the degree to which people are adopting, you know, moderates who are sort of balanced are adopting as social camouflage a certain set of moral foundations. And the implication of this for the IQ political orientation issue is that to the extent that modern discourse in modern culture is, is sort of framed by, by in my opinion, fairly extreme leftists, um, by world historical standards, certainly, um, to what extent is, are, they in, are they generating that correlation by having moderates align with them, essentially, and the smart ones are better able to do this than the less smart ones. So you end up with this gradation of followership or efficacy in followership, which tracks intelligence and can therefore generate these these correlations. And one of the interesting things I found in researching this, this model were instances which have been almost completely ignored in the literature of data collected from places like apartheid-era South Africa, uh, Australia in the 1960s and 70s, where political scientists uh, were actually finding completely the opposite. They were finding that more traditionalist, more anti-explicitly, sort of you could call it reactionary, anti-egalitarian values were associated with higher IQ. Um, and I know, I know a handful of studies that actually found this, but never, uh, you know, ne- never, it's never much, much has never really been made of it in the literature. And again, in Wait, these so, so sorry, I just want to make sure I understand that. So the people with the higher IQ were less inclined towards egalitarianism. Oh yes, much more. Much, oh, I, much. I can see that completely. I mean, because it, it's not just IQ differences, but you also need a strict meritocracy, which means equality before the law, not a massive mm-hmm. redistribution of income, eat what you kill meritocracy. I mean, as a high IQ person, I mean, that's one of the reasons that that I think it takes a higher IQ to appreciate and, and enjoy and advocate for a free market. Because if you've got high IQ, you're going to really, really win on average, in a meritocracy, and if it's massive redistribution of wealth, you're going to be kind of crippled. Well, it's an interesting paradox, because we know from sundry uh, sundry analyses that IQ is actually positively correlated with uh, one's sort of intuitive understanding of market dynamics. So apparently, high IQ people tend to be more sort of market-oriented. They think more like economists. Yet those same people tend to self-report as being more leftist and presumably, therefore, more in favor of sort of redistributive economic policies. Um, so the paradox there is very interesting and I think sort of speaks to the broader kind of way in which the left, particularly in the 19 sort of 60s through you know, the, the cultural Marxist movement, came to abandon or largely came to abandon uh, this idea of sort of syndicalism. Uh, organized workers uh, controlling the means of production, that sort of classical Marxism. And they came to embrace market mechanisms as a, as a vector through which they could actually promote their their egalitarian ideology. And, and you sort of see this paradox at play with all of these very powerful billionaires, uh, not all of them, of course, but you know, a decent number of them, um, and very powerful organizations, which are free, ostensibly free market organizations, which are actively, without provocation, promoting and enforcing egalitarian norms and values. It's a sort of spontaneous, it seems that the most effective market actors are also the ones who are leveraging the most social credit through promoting egalitarianism. Oh, you mean might, like the, the, um, the Warren Buffetts who say, you know, well, I pay less tax than my secretary. I'd love to pay more tax and so on. But I think without provocation, I mean, the left controls the media, the left controls uh, the, um, the news organizations, the left controls academia. The, I mean, if the left gets their sights on you and wants to do great harm, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about uh, the, 
the conference that you had uh, mentioned that uh, is uh, re- really challenging. So I think it's a way of saying, well, I'm really, really rich, but I'm going to counter signal the market realities that got me here. And the fact that it takes high IQ to understand the market goes back to Ricardo's the seen versus the unseen, you know, which is you have to see the hidden costs of particular policies, not just the visible benefits and so on, or the hidden benefits rather than the visible costs. And so to me, it's a perfectly sensible thing if you want to both be popular and wealthy to enjoy the free market in terms of how it produces the wealth for you or helps you gain or earn the wealth, but also at the same time counter signal against the free market so you're not attacked by the hysterics of the left-wing media. Yes, I agree. So, so yes, this is, this is very similar actually to my sort of attempted solution of this problem, which was to promote the idea that, that egalitarianism is a costly signal. So this is exactly along the lines of what you just said. It's it's a way of s- virtue signaling your high status by showing that you can afford to take significant costs. Um, well, it's like the people, sorry to interrupt, but it's like the people who say, I'm very, very much for diversity. It's a way of signaling that they can afford to live in just about the widest neighborhoods known to man. Exactly. It's the same sort of thing. So, so what, what happened was in the Victorian period, you had philanthropy. So it's purely an economic mechanism. You, 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 like Carnegie, Rockefeller, uh, these, you know, these great philanthropists, Andrew Carnegie being a particularly notable example, who died of penury in a bedsit in, in Glasgow. He gave everything away. And in doing so, he leveraged this immortal reputation as this, as this sort of ultra-philanthropist who created universities and created libraries. And created yeah, but the left will still call him a rubber baron, but anyway... <laughs> Yes, um, no, absolutely. So there's sort of no Cecil Rhodes would be another example, but um, but basically the today it's 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 sort of spilled out into the social world, and there are ways that individuals of lesser means can engage in this sort of costly signalling by, as you say, promoting certain things which are ostensibly costly to them in terms of their sort of you know interests essentially, um, but at the same time are things they don't actually have to deal with in real life. They can just push the costs onto other more vulnerable sections of the community. And in so doing, they, they can sidestep. It's a form of social cheating, really. And it's, it's been made possible by decoupling the, the sort of philanthropic mechanism from the idea that you really have to be very wealthy to be a philanthropist. Now you can just be some Joe Schmo on the street, essentially, who talks about, you know, who talks for talk about some progressive cause or other. And you don't actually really do anything other than just, you know, vote and advocate and, and do a bit of activism on the side. You really, there's no costs to you personally to any consequences downstream of this advocacy. Oh, there's this wonderful video of, um, I can't remember, Denmark or Sweden or something like that, where they... These, uh, it's an Arabic fellow or a Middle Eastern fellow goes up to some white person and says, do you think that we should take more refugees in the Middle East? And everyone's like, well, yes, yes, of course, right? And then he's like, well, Muhammad right here uh, needs a place to stay tonight. And people, oh, no, I can't tonight. <laughs> you know, oh, is it actually going to accrue to me? Well, that's going to, you know, free virtue signaling is, is going to be the death of us all. Now, I'm sorry to have taken so long to get <laughs> to this sort of central thesis, but I really wanted to pick your brain all week. So let's, um, I'm not going to start, in the classical world, because I really, really want people to, to read the book. Uh, and at our wits end, we'll, we'll put the link to it below, and we'll make sure you, you get uh, these books sold. It's fantastic. It's got great notes. It's very elegantly written. It's a, a powerful thesis. So I don't want to give away too much of it. But if we could just do a little bit of the slice and dice between the Black sure. Death and the Industrial Revolution. Uh, that, to me, is a, is a very powerful thesis that I've never seen assembled with these kinds of copious footnotes in one place before. Yes, and we the sort of uniting 
rubric, essentially, the thing that, that ties all these things together is that each of these periods correspond to periods of intense selection for we focus on intelligence, but doubtlessly there are going to be other traits that are going to get caught up in that as well. Personality traits, the sort of things Gregory Clark talks about. But with respect to intelligence, it's very significant because take something like the Black Death. The Black During the Black Death, there were periods in which you had all of the peasantry in an area going extinct. And the interesting thing that happened immediately after the Black Death was you had this massive increase in skills premium among peasants, the surviving peasants. So it wasn't just because of the quantity of labor had gone down, but the these peasants who survived tended to be higher status. They tended to be artisans or guildsmen. They tended not to be sort of vagrants and, and vagabonds and villains. And that, those are actually real terms, uh, which we use in the book. These describe sort of ranks of people, essentially, in terms of general order of desirability, I guess. And the idea was that, that there was this significant sort of premium placed on the survivors because the survivors actually had the skills necessary to leverage higher wages and things. And you couldn't just find hundreds and hundreds of peasants to come and do things. You, you all of a sudden had these smaller numbers of peasants who were very industrious and capable and, and who could charge higher rates for their labor. And, and that was a consequence of the Black Death probably having significantly shifted the uh, mean of general intelligence in the West upwards. Um, other examples are mechanisms of social control. Um, so, for example, capital punishment. It's a very good paper by Harpending and Salter, which we sorry Harpending and uh, Frost, Peter Frost rather, which came out a couple of years ago. Um, and in this paper, what they did is they looked at the degree to which people were removed from a population due to the use of capital punishment as a way of dealing with criminality. And what a lot of people forget is that historically. Uh, many things were capital crimes, stealing, all sorts of things. You were very lucky if you got deported. Most things just carried the death penalty. So it was very easy to get yourself killed. And what they, what they, what they did was they, these researchers calculated the degree to which um, this would translate into a selection pressure using a thing called the Breeders' Equation which is simply just the, how you can calculate the rate of selection by multiplying the strength of selection by the heritability of the trait. And they showed that the actual historical observed strength of selection based on who was being killed and who wasn't being killed and the rates at which people were being decirculated translates into an observed decline in homicide rates and other forms of criminality, which is very, very close to the value you'd get if this selection were acting genetically at the level of criminality. And because criminality is negatively associated with IQ, because obviously there were certain forms of criminality, more sort of common forms of criminality, and certainly negatively associated with IQ, this could have been another source of social selection. So we go back to that concept of social selection. Uh, this could be another source of important social selection that could have enriched uh, Western genomes, so these genetic variants favoring higher IQ. Yeah, and it, you, the, the numbers are actually quite staggering. It's it's one percent, a, a give or take of men per generation, uh, capital mm -hmm. punishment. Another one percent die at the scene of the crime uh, or die in prison, and so on. And again, we we know that it's not a perfect legal system, and some people got caught up who were unjustly there. Yeah. But you know, two percent or so. Well, psychopathy is what two percent of the population. I mean, it really does seem to capture uh, a pretty high net of people taking them out of the gene pool permanently, at least in terms of, of, of England, you know, getting, getting sent to Australia would pretty much do the same 
thing. It was not a lot of two-way tickets there. And yes. this does cause, I was really struck by a couple of hundred years ago, uh, uh, the, the uh, murder rate in Britain was similar to Brazil now or, or Mexico a little later and so on. It's, uh, it's a big deal if you can take violent people out of the gene pool. Now, we're not talking about the morals or the ethics of, of anything like this. We're simply talking about the biological genetic consequences. Yes, that's right. We're not, again, we're not, as you say, we're not, we're not saying this was a good thing or a bad thing. This is simply something that happened in this period. It's simply a process. And a consequence of this process would have been a reduction in the frequency of variants that would predispose towards criminality and a promotion of the frequency of variants that would, that would sort of inoculate one against criminality. And that might include traits like having a slow life history and also having a, uh, a high level of general intelligence. I can also see that if uh, men got deported or, or hung and so on, that it may lower their attractiveness to women, um, even if you never got caught and so on, the odds that you might be and then be killed would leave the, man, leave the woman without a provider for her children and so on. And again, to me, we do have to remind, the, at least I like to remind the world that the women's choices in sexual partners have a lot to do with the future trajectory of the society. Yes, absolutely. And the, this sort of segues back to the, the, the discussion on, on fluctuating sex ratio selection, where it has in fact been found that uh, women change their patterns of preferences for traits in males based on whether males are rarer than women or more common than women. And the way it works seems to be that when men are scarcer um, and there's more inter-male competition for female attention, Females tend to select the sort of higher mating effort type traits. So they tend to go for more promiscuous men, um, men who can you know, display more sort of vigorously, essentially. But when it's the other way around, when you have large numbers of males who are competing over relatively small numbers of females, females are more choosy with respect to traits associated with slower life history. They want providers. They want, and they'll have the males compete with one another in such a way that signals their slow life history as opposed to their fast life history. So the shift in the balance between the sort of sex ratios favoring sometimes men, sometimes women over time is a reason, one of the reasons why you may have this variation in personality and life history traits in a population. Um, because the women are definitely more interested in, in, in different poles of this dimension, essentially, when you have skewed sex ratios that are biased in one way or the other. Okay. The Victorian era... It's always fascinated me. I mean, the, the two are the agricultural revolution, because the industrial revolution everyone knows about, but people forget that there had to be an agricultural one first. Exactly, but the yes. Victorian era, in terms of that, I don't know, stuffed shirt, crisp mustached, well-oiled hair collection of rampant geniuses that characterized the, uh, the European, and, and in particular, the British landscape, what do you think were the factors that produced such an explosion of brilliance in such a concentrated area for tragically a relatively short period of time. Well, I think you kind of had a you kind of had a, a, a this there's this term that's used by certain futurists called the singularity, and the singularity is this idea that you get this kind of acceleration accelerated returns process. So the example they like to give is you had these. You have these artificial intelligences that can design the next generation and that's a little bit better than the precursor one and so on and so forth. And it does so in a kind of recursive fashion. I think we hit a sort of singularity 
type situation in the Victorian era because what we had in the Victorian era, and in particular Britain and America, these sort of Anglophone nations, was you have this very high per capita concentration of genius, scientific genius. And if you just you just looked at London in say the eighteen fifties or sixties, you had you 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 would have had Galton, you would have had Darwin, you would have had Babbage, you would have had Kelvin, you would have had Maxwell, you would have had I, I could go Isambard Kingdom Brunel. You know, I could I could reel off a whole list of these these extremely eminent people, each of whom are associated with an with a groundbreaking work or development which in its own way is as significant as Einstein's theory of relativity. I walk around London, I don't see those people anymore. You don't you don't get those those people. What you have a kind of third or fourth fiddle type minds who 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 have who tend to work in groups and tend to sort of uh bureaucratize the way they do things and and they're very good at organizing people and maybe that's often how they generate their rewards um more so than, than by actually being innovative groundbreaking risk takers yeah, just and that's a bunch what, of bureaucratic busybodies in lab coats these days it seems well, Exactly. That's absolutely right. And that's, that's certainly been my experience of, of sort of organized science, as I call it. Uh, there's really no room. There's absolute hostility for anyone who is, is in any way tries to be an original thinker. It's just not it's not tolerated. But the but going back to the Victorians, science revolved around these gentlemen, these these brilliant people who were recognized by their peers as being profoundly brilliant and as such, they were able to regulate, to a certain degree, the ecology of science. And this led to a science which was far more streamlined in terms of its pipeline through which uh, major discoveries could translate into major applications, for example. And also people back then tended to value knowledge for knowledge's sake. And this was sort of bound up with their sense that you were in a way doing God's work, that science was kind of a revelatory act the ideology behind this was no theology behind this was known as neo-Thomism. So it's just neo-Thomistic, this peculiar and very good mixture of sort of Christian values and scientific inquiry, which led to this this idea that, that you know the truth content of an idea is absolutely sacred to tell lies, to deceive was considered the most serious of sins. Anyone who engaged in plagiarism or anyone who engaged in scientific fraud or deception was instantly cast out with huge consequences there was no you everyone with society would turn its back on you essentially this kept everyone very straight and narrow it kept everyone very rigorous and it, it, it critically uh, created a culture of truth orientation and this process kind of gelled in this amazing way that we've never seen before maybe maybe in certain periods of, but anyway i'll let i'll let your viewers read the book to find out where in history this may have been present but um certainly recently in the victorian era we haven't had anything like that since and if you just look at the 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 numbers the rates of macro innovation, that is to say, innovations which are conspicuously novel. So these are new I, new breakthrough innovations that historians look back on that and independent historians, they all go, ah, yes, that was a great thing. That was the splitting of the atom. That was the theory of relativity. That was descent through modification, you know, Darwin's theory. That was the laws of electromagnetism in the case of Maxwell, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Independent historians will all agree with each other, even if they don't agree on anything else, will all agree with each other independently of one another that this was a major 
breakthrough and this individual was a major and significant individual and to put these numbers into perspective because I, I have this sort of horror statistic i like to give people which illustrates how far we've fallen the macro innovation rate i.e the number of breakthrough macro innovations per year per billion of the world's population was 16 so you had 16 breakthrough ideas or breakthrough innovations Per person, per year, rather, um, per billion of the world's population back in 1850. Today it's four. Or rather, that's the 2005 number. But it's and four. we could easily say that with improvements in communication, our capacity to have this conversation across the pond, uh, it should be far larger. Uh, better education, exactly. more access to higher education, better nutrition than the 1850s, fewer diseases, and mm -hmm. better communications technology, better publishing technology, greater meritocracy in the realm of ideas because we can have these kinds of conversations should be far more. So I think if you were to normalize to that, it would be even worse. Well, we, we do, and it is. Um, it, it, it absolutely is when you when you you know when you when you look at it in that way and you you look at the fact that everybody has access to a level of education that was undreamt of in the Victorian era. Very few people would have had the the luxury of being able to go to university, for example. Hardly anyone went to university. There were hardly any universities back then. You had the Golden Triangle. You had Oxford, Cambridge, and London. That was it. Three universities, so one or two others in Scotland and up north, but you know they don't count. Back then, they really didn't. They were not intellectual powerhouses. And I say this as a Scots, a Scotsman, by the way. I'm allowed to to to, to der you know, derogate my own people. Um, so so basically, the the um, so basically, you had this uh, you have this situation in which yeah, very few people had access to university or tertiary level education. Very few people had access to secondary level education. The average age at which people dropped out of school, or rather left school, was pre-puberty. All they had to do was, was uh, this was after the major educational reforms in, in, the, in the, the, uh, the, the sort of uh, mid-19th century. Um, this was, you know, after the child labor laws. The idea was it was the optimal level of education was maybe up to the age of sort of nine for women or something and 12 for men, and that was it. Um, you had to learn to sign your own name on a bit of parchment and read alphabetic letters, and that was it. And if you could do that, maybe if you were very good, you'd, you'd be moved on to basic sums. And if you were extraordinarily gifted in some in some way, then you could sort of be nudged into this extremely narrow stream that would take you through to Oxbridge and the classics, essentially. But very few people, very, very few people, yet these Victorians were beating the tar out of us in terms of their innovative prowess. We have nothing on them. Mm. Well, Absolutely. Let's close on this topic too. And I, I want to remind people that this book goes through a lot of data through the 20th century, goes back in time about the cycle of civilizations. It's an incredible book and I'm, I'm really, really pleased to have read it. But let's talk about what happens in the fading emperors, uh, sorry, in the fading, I guess, empires and embers of human brilliance because as intelligence falls, it becomes more dangerous to be intelligent. And that's, it's not just a general decline. You know, if, if people are generally getting shorter, it's not dangerous to be tall. But it's not the same thing to do with intelligence. I mean, I've noticed, uh, I've been doing this uh, philosophy show for 15 years now. And in the beginning, I could go and give speeches, and it was controversial. I didn't get debates and so on, but there was no violence. There was, you know, some upset and so on. 
But now it's gotten to the point where people who come to see me speak are getting physically attacked, their buses are getting turned over, I'm being deplatformed. The level of aggression against you know, reasonable, sourced, empirical arguments is really escalating. And it's, it becomes a, a vicious cycle in a way, or it becomes almost asymptotic how much harder it is to be a creative public intellectual because the mob has been, I think, generally dumbed down and filled full of aggressive hysteria by sophists to the point where, and, and you were talking uh, in your emails to me about uh, intelligence conferences and just how difficult it is in the current climate. So it's not just a less intelligent society, it's an anti-intellectual society to the point sometimes of outright violence and aggression. And that can manifest in just threats or it can manifest in, in physical violence. And that aspect tends to accelerate the decline far beyond the genetics. Yes, I, I, I agree. And I, I think that you, you, the sort of subtleties and nuance of social interaction among individuals, such as sort of equality in the variance of conversational turn-taking uh, is, a, you know, is a good example of this, um, i.e. If, if somebody is on a stage and they have been invited there and they are not doing anything unreasonable, such as inciting violence or promoting sedition or what have you, it's always been a foundation, a foundational value in the West that such individuals have a right to view, uh, to, to air their opinions. And as long as, again, as long as their opinions don't transgress certain, certain obvious lines that everyone at every point in, in, in history have agreed are obvious lines, then that is considered acceptable. Um, however, today those lines have moved, and the lines have now moved into a situation where we now have these confected outrages, such as microaggressions. And if you wound someone through making them feel bad for 10 seconds because you presented them with a hate fact or what have you, they all of a sudden become victims. And as a result of having that victim status, they draw down on a huge amount of social power that is given to them by a society that finds its virtue in victimhood. And the idea is, is if you're saying things that are making people uncomfortable, you are creating victims, you are triggering victims, essentially. And as a consequence of that, your speech becomes violent because it's aggressive, albeit not at the level of initiation of physical force. It's at the level of initiation of microaggressive force. And as a consequence, the line shifts. And now all of a sudden you find you can't say certain things. Well, our and free so, speech becomes yeah. violence to them, and their free speech translates to physical violence against us, and that's not a very equal approach. Exactly. So, so, so ultimately, the deck becomes sort of stacked in their favor, and in such a way that leads to further um, suppression of these, of individuals who, whose views, shall we say, are not, uh, do not resonate with the normative center of gravity. These are people like yourself who have you know, other ideas about how society should be organized and other ideas about how, you know, how people should really comport themselves in the presence of other people. And it seems that those sort of views belong to a bygone era when people were generally more intelligent and, and were generally more sort of tolerant of this kind of uh, disquisition. And often people got excited at the prospect of being genuinely challenged. 
in their thinking. For example, Darwin is a very good example of this. There's been a lot of sort of nonsense written about how Darwin had the church coming after him and all this sort of thing. It's not really true. He didn't. Um, he actually excited a lot of people's sensibilities, so much so that people paid a lot of money to buy his book and to read what he had to say, including a lot of sort of God-fearing people, like Bishop Wilberforce was a very good example, Soapy Sam, he is, as he was known by his colleagues, he was a, he was a debater, and he debated Aldous, um, uh, not Aldous, sorry, uh, Julian Huxley, the, uh, the, you know, the first Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, as he was known in, in contemporary circles. And of course, the argument goes that, oh, Wilberforce was completely beaten by Huxley, and it was this power of science versus religion. No, actually, Wilberforce was genuinely interested in uh, in Darwinism and did not see it as being particularly incompatible with his religious worldview. He just he was just worried about the effect that it might have on the sort of spiritual uniqueness of man, essentially, and that was the locus of his complaint. But he enjoyed it, and so did a lot of other religious people. They were interested, they saw, because again, their views were tied into this idea fundamentally that if you are an honest person, you're a man of honor, and you go out and you 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 observe certain regularities in nature, or you conduct certain experiments, and you find a particular result, and that's what you find, and that is the way that God intends it. That is an act of revelation, and to say that it's different is to blaspheme. This was how strongly held this view was back then in terms of truth. Truth had this sacred level of value. Today we don't live in that society. We live in a we live in a relativist world. Truth is relative it's, it's based on who it serves it's based on 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 you know who it disprivileges ostensibly based on the opinions of, of certain people it's 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 there's no sacred value put in truth truth can be bad and it's something can be that is to be avoided and even even codified in law you know laws are even created in such a way that forbids certain kinds of of, of, of you know truth telling in instances where where that might offend the sensibilities of minorities for example so so you you, you have a situation in which there is no premium put on truth truth is merely expedient and it doesn't even matter if you are a an intrinsically untruthful person who makes a career out of telling out and out lies you will succeed if in so doing you are providing sort of bromides and other emotional emollients to you know to soothe the sort of uh, sentiments of this increasingly emotionally incontinent sort of mass of overly coddled and significantly less intelligent individuals that make up the sort of bulk of our of our so-called middle and upper middle classes in the West. And I exclude the working classes from this because they, they seem to have a really strong resistance to this sort oh, of thing. I, uh, I can usually yeah. tell whether somebody's a rational empiricist simply based on asking if they ever worked a physical labor job in their life. Because it's kind of tough to be overly yeah. intellectual when if something goes wrong, you lose an arm. You learn to be very alert and aware of absolute empiricism and, and reality. And so what happened recently with the conference? Okay, well, basically, I was involved in organizing a conference, which we've held once a year since 2014. So we've, we've held it now, we're going to be holding the fifth one this year, but we've, we've held it for uh, four previous years. It's called the London Conference on Intelligence, or LCI. And basically what it was, was a, an opportunity, because there are very, there's only one conference in the world that caters to intelligence researchers. 
and that's the International Society for Intelligence Research. And it's a great organization. I've been a member for many years in good standing. Um, I, you know, I'm on the editorial board of the society's journal, etc. And they're fantastic, but they're the only one. Whereas if you look at personality psychology, there are literally hundreds of conferences and multiple different societies that cater to interests in personality. So we decided to sort of solve this problem by creating another conference, uh, which we called the London Conference after Hans Eysenck's London School of, of, of Differential Psychology. So it was... We've held it outside of London, um, out of necessity, actually, in recent years. Uh, but we call it the London Conference to sort of honor that tradition in differential psychology. So what happened was this. We were minding our own business, just having these conferences. And, uh, you know, we promoted the conferences were promoted in a sort of fairly limited way. And, and we got we got you know, interested people coming and lots of respectable academics coming and giving talks and things. Um, Adam Perkins was there at one of them and he, he gave a really good talk on the welfare trait and all this sort of things. So we got some very nice academics, uh, coming and talking and, and we, we were just sort of carrying along until a chap called Toby Young came to the conference. And this was in 2017. And Toby Young is a journalist who works for the spectator and he's right, right leaning essentially. But he sort of made a bit of a, a blunder because he gave a presentation at this other intelligence conference, ISIR, in which he sort of recounted his experiences being at the London conference. And he said, oh, it was like a cloak and dagger affair and everyone was using pseudonyms and it was secret and, and all this sort of thing. And he was sort of editorializing. I, I don't blame him for this. He's just being a journalist, right? This is how they are. They tend to editorialize. It's why they're best avoided. I think your, your strategy <laughs> is, is a really good one. Keep away from them. Um, but he, he editorialized in the course of giving his presentation at ISIR. And this led to, this unfortunately coincided with him being promoted to a position of political authority. He became head of a, of a governmental organization called the Office for Students, the function of which is to protect viewpoint diversity on campuses. So it's an attempt by the government to put <laughs> you mean, back You mean all flavors of hard leftism. Right. Got it. That, that's right. Yeah. So you want five flavors instead of two. That's right. So, so, so he was put in charge of this. And unfortunately, that, of course, brought him to the attention of very powerful and organized leftist organizations like Momentum, uh, which is you know, this powerful sort of organization boosting Corbyn at the moment in the UK. And they found out that he'd attended this London conference and they, they, they found out about it through the transcript of his speech he gave at ISIR and they started digging into it and they, they decided to use it as a bludgeon against him. And he ended up resigning from the office for students, um, sort of going into hiding for a few months. Uh, and we then became targets of some very, very significant and sustained negative media coverage, which ended up being very costly in terms of certain people, including some young, you know, early career researchers who have been um, essentially prosecuted almost by their universities for having been involved in, in, this, in, in this conference. And the, the controversy really revolved around two things. One is the allegation that the conference was secret and it wasn't, it was by invitation only, which is normal for small conferences. It was not secret. You know, people could attend from the public. Indeed, we had people from the public there, 
you just had to be sort of in the know. You just had to sort of follow the right blogs and things to see where it was being promoted. But the speakers... Well, also, when you're going to get attacked for having a conference and then they say, aha, you don't seem to be promoting it very much. It's like, well, that, that's a good reason for that, you lunatics. Well, there's, yes, there's that as well. But we, we didn't go out of our way to conceal it. Right. You know, we, we, didn't, we didn't hide anything. This was the key, the key issue because we were accused of having hidden relevant information from a university that was hosting the conference. And this I dispute quite strongly as we, we did no such thing. Um, the other thing that, that, that happened with the conference was the sort of topics that were discussed became a major uh, a major problem essentially and the conference became became known as a eugenics secret eugenics conference and it's peculiar because um of all the talks we had at this conference uh, over the last sort of the, the previous uh four years only 2.7 percent of those talks that is to say two out of 75 talks in total dealt with the topic of eugenics and both of these talks were given by people who who have sort of made public their endorsement of liberal eugenics so this is the use of genetic engineering and that sort of thing to you know enhance human flourishing in sundry of their publications and have never received a negative word uh one of whom was john glad who's sadly dead um who came and talked about his his uh, his book eugenics in the 21st century which is just an advocacy of uh, of, of you know the use of genetic engineering to get rid of diseases and boost sort of traits associated with human well-being and flourishing he just calls it eugenics i mean uh, the joke i made at the time was you'd have gotten more eugenics at a reproductive genetics conference <laughs> than at our conference and the other thing of course that we talked about which which offended delicate sensibilities was the issue of race and population differences what people don't realize is how mainstream talk of this is in intelligence research. And even our most hard-nosed environmentalists, people like Richard Nisbet, accept that there are differences between blacks and whites in terms of levels of general intelligence. What they dispute is the cause. Mm -hmm. They say it's all environmental. The average intelligence research, and we actually have data on this, says it's a mixture of genes and environment. So they're somewhat on the outside. But the, uh, but the reality is this discussion is entirely mainstream about the reality of these differences. The question is the causes and consequences of these differences. And there is legitimate scope for debate about these things. So, again, if you look at ISIR, if you pick up any prospectus, you will see a number of, a number of talks devoted to things like Spearman's hypothesis and national IQ studies and all these other sort of race and ethnic IQ differences type things. It's just they picked it up in our case because it became, you know, a, a locus of sens sensationalism, essentially. And again, only a minority of talks at the conference dealt with this topic. To be precise, it was 29 out of the 75 talks that dealt with this topic. So 38.7, it was a respectable minority but it was a minority of talks. Most of the talks dealt with issues that had nothing to do with race differences, nothing to do with eugenics. Most of the talks dealt with individual differences or Flynn effect research or developmental psychology or work on my work on mutation accumulation and recent patterns of selection for intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. So cognitive aging as well with neuropsychology there with re regular old cognitive psychology was represented there as well. 
And we had a huge range of opinions as well among the attendees. Some were very hardline environmentalists, some were hardline hereditarians, and most, like as is typical for the intelligence research community, fell somewhere in between. So we ended up being attacked really, really viciously. We had the Daily Mail come after us. We had the Telegraph come after us, the Guardian, Huffington Post, Russia Today, um, all sorts of periodicals sort of piled in on us, piled high and deep, essentially. And I was attacked in the New Statesman. Um, I, I was singled out for criticism. We had this student journalist who I will not name, uh, who, who sort of really kicked off this with a sensational expose of the secret eugenics conference with neo-Nazi links. This is the other thing, neo-Nazi oh, links. Yes. And the moment you talk about eugenics, people immediately go to the Nazis as everyone who talks about it. Trying to reduce illness by studying genes is somehow wanting to, what, exterminate the homeless. Like, I mean, it, it literally is uh, the leap across the canyon on a jetpack of speculation that is always utterly unjust, at least as far as I've ever seen. That's right. So, so we, were, we, were, we were being attacked. We had, you know, phones ringing off the hook with journalists. I had, I had hostile journalists coming after me while I was trying to enjoy my... Uh, my, my time at the University of Arizona, um, I, I, we, we were getting hounded, we were getting rude emails, we were getting all sorts of things coming at us, essentially. And some of us really suffered, I mean, more than I did, because I'm independently funded. And the person who independently funds me is not going to withdraw my funding because I'm involved in, in politic research. As a matter of fact, he's more, more likely to give me more funding because of that. Um, so I'm very lucky. But the problem we have is that uh, a lot of these young researchers and also some established, I mean, with one chap, um, actually, I shouldn't name him because I think there might be a lawsuit involved in what's going on, who was fired from a university at which he had been on faculty since 1984, since before I was born. For over 35 years, he'd been on faculty at this university. And he he was fired because of this. And, and get this, he got a job at another university in the area. Within 24 hours, they fired him from that as a result of a Google search. We had, we had a lot of these people coming after us on, on a website called Rational Wiki. And, and these are really delightful people. They, they are extraordinarily uh, diligent, almost to the point of, stalker-ishness stalker in terms of the sort of great lengths they go to dig up dirt on their victims. And, and they, they, they have, you know, most of, the, most of the people they go after are sort of people who believe in, you know, Bigfoot and, and spoon-bending and things like that. They sort of ostensibly position themselves as skeptics and atheists or what have you. But they also have a particular dislike of us. And each and every one of us has a sort of lovingly maintained um, you know, wonderfully sort of uh, uh, libelous uh, rational wiki page, which, of course, due to whatever it is they do to, to jack up the uh, uh, search rankings of these pages leads to it being in the first first position in poll position whenever you Google my name or Google, you know, Google any other LCI attendee. And they were coming after people. It was absolutely, absolutely insane. The damage that this caused was really, really, really significant. And it caused a lot of people emotional distress, as you would imagine, in addition to financial distress and other forms of sort of social distress. And actually, we kind of got our got our last word on it when 
and I sent you this this paper. And actually, I, I I'd appreciate it very much if you could make this paper perhaps available as a link in in the in in the description that accompanies this video, because uh, I do want people to see this. And this is a peer reviewed article that I organised for publication of a journal Intelligence. Um, which was co-signed by 14 other attendees at this conference. So these are people who both attended and spoken at the conference. And what we did is we, we basically described how difficult it is to communicate intelligence research. And we looked at the reasons why it might be getting more and more difficult over time. And we, we sort of deal with each and every one of the allegations made against us in the media as if it were a testable prediction. So they said we were a eugenics conference. We tested that. We audited our own abstracts. We did a scientometric analysis. We tried to work out what was presented. If eugenics was overrepresented, it wasn't. Race differences conference. No, again, as I mentioned earlier, 38.7% of all talks. So you know, it's a significant but a minority of talks nonetheless. And so on and so forth. We kind of went through this list of claims. We also looked at how mainstream we were, just to give you another example. So uh, we to do that, where you, where you evaluate how mainstream a conference is, is you work out how many of the papers that are presented end up becoming publications in respectable journals. And it turns out we were, uh, we, we were 48%. 48% of the talks went on to be published in some really top-tier journals, including Twins Research and Human Genetics, and, and given that some of the speakers wouldn't be pursuing that, uh, that's a very high ratio. Exactly. So not everyone was going to present, not everyone was going to publish. So to get 48% over four or so years was really rather significant. And to give you some idea for how mainstream that makes us, there was a meta-analysis conducted a couple of years ago of how many conference presentations given at biomedical science conferences end up being presented, end up turning into peer-reviewed papers. And we actually were doing better than them because on average, 44.5%. So we are 48%. So we're a little bit doing a little bit better than them. So we took every one of these claims and we just demolished them one by one. And uh, yeah, if you, if you can help get the word out on this through linking in this paper and, and making more people aware of it, that would be really terrific because s still we're getting fallout from this. You know, There's still damage being done. Uh, I had to recently defend a young researcher at a university. I won't name a researcher. I won't name a university. I, I was actually summoned as a witness. Uh, he was being investigated by his own faculty. And I just encountered this monolithic wall of hostility from his administrators and his career professors. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, I mean, the poor chap, he was, you know, he was absolutely mortified by the whole thing. It really, really was not a good experience. Well, and of course, it is designed to paint a radioactive moat around individuals and the topic. And that is terrible. I mean, there should be nothing yes. in the realm of science or humanity or intelligence or genetics that is beyond scientific examination. And it is strange to think that in an odd way, Mike, we've had just a couple of hundred years of freedom from blasphemy laws. Yes, and they're back with yeah. a vengeance. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, listen, um, I just really, really appreciate your time. Was, I'm, I'm glad that we had a good old chunk of time because it's a, it, we could keep going but let's um uh, remind people the name of the book at our wits end why we why we're becoming less intelligent and what it means for the future societies by edward dutton d-u-t-t-o-n michael a woodley w-o-o-d-l-e-y of miney and uh, that's m-e-n-i-e 
Uh, I'll put a link to it below and you can get it hard copy, you can get it immediately uh, on, on Kindle and just crack the book. It's fascinating talking points uh, and it is something that there's still a lot of smart people out there and if we're aware of these issues and we can discuss them, then we can avoid what comes when society's intelligence dips below that which is necessary to sustain and advance civilization. It really is almost like the lowering of IQ is like a virus that attacks the brain that will undo our civilization. It is an extraordinarily high impact event, the highest impact really that can be imagined. We have a civilization across the world where billions and billions of people are sustained by the effects of high intelligence. We lose that high intelligence, it could be the single biggest drawn out catastrophe, extinction event to some degree for billions of people. It is an extraordinarily important topic. I hope I'm not overselling it, but that's certainly the way that I see it. And so please, please get a hold of this book, tweet about it, uh, uh, put it on Facebook, write reviews about it, share the information with people around. Uh, I, I don't believe there's uh, nothing in the future but what we want to will. But if we don't have the information, we are really sailing blind off a cliff. I agree. Um, I'd also like to just briefly mention um, that a number of my colleagues and I, who, as I mentioned earlier, are sort of drawing independent funding from various individuals, are exploring sort of alternative methods of crowdfunding our research. Um, through these these platforms like uh, Patreon that's increasingly becoming hostile to sort of controversial research or controversial individuals and things like Subscribestar as well, which seems to be a sort of derivative of Patreon that, that, that is more tolerant of viewpoint diversity, I guess. Um, so I've set up a, 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 an account on both of these platforms. Um, and if anyone is is interested in, in helping subsidize my, my research, uh, if they would consider donating, that would be extraordinarily generous of you, and it would be jolly decent of you, and it would be massively appreciated. Um, I'd also like to say we I'm, I now have a periodic appearance on YouTube on a channel called The Jolly Heretic, which I co-run with my co-author, Ed Dutton, co-author of the book, uh, with whom I co-authored the book, rather. And I put out a show the end of every week called them under the Technical Heretic label. And it's a sort of technical deep dive into various of my uh, topics, uh, various papers that I publish, various topics that are of interest. So I've put out a couple of those and I'll be putting out, I'll be uploading one after this, actually. So this week's episode will, will appear um, after, I, after this recording has finished. Wonderful. Well, we'll put the links to all of that in the show notes. I really, really appreciate your time. I hope we can do it again soon. And uh, I wish you the very, very best for the rest of the day. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for hosting me. Well, thank you so much for enjoying this latest free domain show on philosophy. And I'm going to be frank and ask you for your help, your support, your encouragement, and your resources. Please like, subscribe, and share, and all of that good stuff to get philosophy out into the world. And also, equally importantly, go to freedomain.com forward slash donate to help out the show, to give me the resources that I need to bring more and better philosophy to an increasingly desperate world. So thank you so much for your support, my friends. freedomain.com forward slash donate.